Welcome back to the second installment of the James Jennings series. If you listened in last week, you heard James talk about getting trained up to be a part of the Naval Task Force that would land a whole bunch of really angry United States Marines on the island of Iwo Jima. Well, this week we're going to get into that and a lot more. So listen in and enjoy the ride. Well, we we woke up one morning underway and we had all these Marines aboard. Man, we had Marines all over our ship. And uh, uh, we were in, in route to Anawiktaw in the Marshall Islands. We really didn't know where we was going, but uh, this history of my ship tells me exactly where I was going. And I remember when we got there, we knew where we was going. But, oh, yeah. And then we went from there to Saipan, and that's in the Marina, Marina's Islands. And at Saipan, we took on some more uh, provisions. And when we left Saipan, we knew we were going to war, but we didn't know exactly what it was. What kind of emotions were you experiencing? Well, you know, it was real, real hush-hush on, on our orders. And uh, the morning we arrived, at our destination, I could see 16-inch shells oh, four hours before we got even even close to the bay where we were go going to drop anchor. That must have been something. And those shells were just big red streaks. Yeah, that'd be uh, amazing. Yeah. Lopping over and exploding. They'd just be a, a, in a curve and into the ground and, and exploding. Then we got close enough we could hear them. And then we got close enough that you could see them fired, but we still couldn't see which ship was firing them. But there were 16-inch shells, and there were battleships, and they were laying them in on Iwo Jima. At that time, we were told that we were at Iwo Jima, hmm. and that we would be making a, a invasion with these Marines that morning at, at uh, 9 a.m. We were put over overboard about four o'clock in the morning with the with the troops that we were going to take in, and we went into rendezvous, and they called us in in waves. Yep. And uh, we were the fifth wave. Board our LCVP was twenty two communication people. They had walkie talkie radios, but they were armed with carbines and and sidearms. And all their, all their arms, their, their, all their uh, carbines had a waterproof uh, cover over, and that's what we got in a ramp when they were, we went to, after we let them out. When we hit the beach in the fifth, fifth uh, wave, they hadn't been a, not one mortar shell had ever uh, went off in in the five waves. If Marines were run, they let Marines just run ashore. Yep. No fire at all. And beside me was a LCVP with a Jeep in it. Hmm. And when that Jeep started to move off the ramp, they put a a, a, a burst of shells right in on that Jeep and they, they blew it up. Mm -hmm. I was out there getting this saw in a fruit jar, so I wanted some of that Iwo Jima saw. They told me it would look like sand, but it was red and it looks like volcanic rocks, what it looked like. 
Could you describe the, the scene when he went on shore? I mean, what was the sounds, the smells, well, the sights? Well, uh, it was just a, just a group of uh, hundreds of Marines just going up on a, a place where there was not a tree, no, no barricades, nothing to get behind. And just running up there and kind of digging a little hole and getting in this in it for safety and then advancing. Hmm. And uh, the casualties were high, so high that I, I can't even describe. After that first blast, and, and by the time I got back on the, the boat and we got back to way, I could see casualties everywhere. And all of them had helmets on, and those depths were fine shot, don't you think they were? The first casualty I saw was that morning just before we went in and the observation plane was flying over us. And I remember how my heart sank. They shot that plane down and it fell within 10 feet of our boat. And of course it went back in the water head first and it didn't, didn't nobody come out of it. And at, at 18 years old, I wasn't scared of nothing but my heart did sink when I, that plane went down and nobody come up out of it. After we got uh, unloaded with the first wave, our fifth wave that we went in, we immediately go back to the ship and reload. And they load us this time with barbed wire, roll after roll of barbed wire, and told us to go back and get in our rendezvous area and make a circle round and around out there in the ocean. Well, all we could do was just watch what was going on on the bank. We could see uh, the shell. We could see that old Mount Shurabacha was had a big cave right at the top of it. And that, that gun was on a railroad track, which I found out afterwards. And that's just under where the flag was raised. Wow. And they'd run that gun out and fire at that battleship and then back it back up in there and they'd... they'd they could shoot in that hole, but that gun would be way back up in that hole. Oh, yeah. They like, never got them out of them caves. They were caves all over that island. I did not know that they had something that formidable, that high up on Mount Suribachi. Yeah, that, that mountain was a Swiss cheese fortress of death. I mean, there was every imaginable type of weapon that they could find a way to shoot at soldiers and sailors. They had in that mountain i'm still amazed at the uh the engineering feat of the japanese military to do what they did to iwo jima largely by hand by hand right i mean they had they had picks they had shovels they would have had dynamite but they they weren't like this hyper mechanized they didn't have this like a cb force like we did these construction battalions Mm -hmm. so they just had a bunch of soldiers out there just working their butts off to right. make holes and tunnels in this godforsaken volcanic, active volcanic island. Could you imagine being, in, you know, uh, assigned to digging tunnels on Mount Suribachi? It's a volcano. Right. <laughs> and you're digging in like, okay, well, how far are we going to go before we hit the throat of the volcano here? You know, yeah. and and how how far, how close was, I don't know. I, and, and as you, a geologist, as a geoscientist in me, the geologist in me, I'm thinking... 
Isn't it hot in there? It I mean, was. Was how? Cl- I mean, at what point did they go? Okay, we can't go any further. Our bits are melting, you know, or whatever. You well, know? So I mean, think about this. You're on the surface, and the surface was already a moonscape. So it's not like that and was, it was a fun hot place too. to be. And then you dig. So here you are, a Japanese soldier, and you're going to be digging these tunnels. And these tunnels would have, again, had noxious gases. It would have stunk like the devil. It would have been hot. Men talked about digging foxholes, and they could feel the heat in a foxhole. Well, imagine a tunnel on this volcano at the end of the island that yeah. you're digging in. And here's the worst part. As the Japanese soldier, you're thinking, this is where I'm going to have to live until I die when the Americans attack. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Literally digging your own grave. Yeah. I mean, that's why Letters from Iwo Jima, that it's movie, so is so powerful, because it really gives you insight into the common soldier's perspective. Um, I mean, Harvey Hunt mentioned when they were on, he was on Iwo Jima, they were digging a foxhole, and they, a steam vent popped up. Yep. And they could make hot coffee. Yes, over the steam vent. I mean, so that tells you something <laughs> about how hot the ground was. He says you couldn't even lay down on it a lot of times. Uh, yeah, I you mean, had to put a canvas <clears throat> down or something so you weren't laying directly on the ground. It just—I mean, if it weren't for the fact of its position, it would be this this waste of an island that that no one would be on. No one's on it now. The only people that go on the island right now are like park services and whatnot to memorialize what happened there. I mean, there's nothing. It, it was just a place to have a battle and die over an airstrip. I think it's, I mean, I'm not kidding. This isn't a joke. Its primary export is sulfur. Yes, it was. <laughs> it, it, I think I think Iwo Jima meant sulfur island. Yes, I think you're right. Holy crap. And, and some of the other things <laughs> yeah. that he mentions as well, like getting a soil sample. Okay. He, you know what I'm saying? I mean, what are you doing, dude? I mean, <laughs> I, okay, I understand you want a souvenir, you know, and I, I remember in Saving Private Ryan, there, you know, the, the guy who was played, but that Tom Sizemore yeah. played. Yeah. He as soon, as for, as soon as he hits the beach, goes over, grabs a jar of soil, and it's next to Anzio or all Italy. The, all the beaches he invaded, all the, yes, and Tunisia and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, I, I just I, I chuckled when I heard him say that. Yeah. I'm like, you got to you're you're getting shelled yeah. and everything. The jeep and, next to you just blew up. Yeah, and you're looking for a jar to put soil in, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not soil; yeah. it's volcanic sand. But at the same time, what it shows is that in the moment, humans know when something's historic. They don't need to wait 20 or 30 years for it to get celebrated. That for a lot of these things, especially something like this, people understood then and there that they were participating in something that was epic and frightening and horrifying. Mm -hmm. And he wanted, I wish... To me, this is one of those things where it's like, do you still have do you that? Still have it? Oh my gosh! You know what I'm saying? Does. I bet he does. And he lived in the area. I would have, I would have driven over just to take a picture oh of gosh. that. Oh my gosh! I mean, holy crap! I mean, it's really hard to get to Iwo now. It is. You have to have special passes and all this stuff. You can't just go there as like well, a. Well, we actually returned it back to Japan. I think in '99 or something like that. Yep. And um, uh, a lot of veterans were really upset about that that we re- returned it you know, back to Japan during their lifetime, you know? Yep. And um, anyway. But but uh, they're they're an ally now, and they've been really respectful when, you know, Americans go there to visit their war dead because yeah. they're there as well. And from what I've seen on TV, um, when they have groups that go there to memorialize it, um, a lot of times they'll do it jointly. They'll have the Japanese wow. and the American military That's there good. doing it jointly. He mentioned about the casualties and whatnot. He goes, I don't know how many people died. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Approximately 70,000 U.S. Marines and 18,000 Japanese soldiers took part in the battle. Okay, so that's kind of that three-to-one sort of attacker, defender that you want to have. So we had the troops. But after nearly 36 days of fighting, nearly 7,000 U.S. Marines, 10% were killed, 
Another 20,000 were wounded. Mm. And the Marines only captured 216 Japanese soldiers. The rest of the 18,000 are still on that island. They're mm. dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... And in fact, I, I, I thought I read... Well, here, you, I, you don't have to read it. They had 18,000 soldiers on that island. If you include uh, dead and wounded on Marines, that's 27,000 Marines that were either killed or, or wounded. It was the only battle that we fought against the Japanese in World War II where our casualties, if you include dead and wounded, exceeded those of the yeah, enemy. That's right. I, re- I remember that stat. That's pretty sobering. And again, it speaks to the uh, the ferocity of the battles as they got closer and closer to the, the mainland. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, the next couple of clips, uh, so w- w- what happens now, He they, they would spend like five, six, seven days there. Um, he would spend most of that time on the beach. There were he would be on ships occasionally, ferrying stuff back and forth. But his job was to be on the beach to be able to twenty four seven operations. And the next couple of clips, uh, there they have loaded their APA with wounded because uh, there were so many of them. The hospital ship filled up quickly and had to leave. And they're going to take care of the wounded and also get ready for the next invasion. So it's like. Here you are doing this, bring the wounded back, load up again, and get your butt over to the next invasion site. So go ahead and play these next two. Out in the middle of the ocean, we had supply ships that come by and, and supplies uh, during, the, during the wartime. And we never traveled in a straight line. It was 31 ships in our division, and we were the, the flagship of the division, 48. And... and uh, I was on my APA was USS Talladega, APA 208, and we run what we call a zigzag course. If you draw a straight line, you zag, zig, and zag across it until you get to where you're going. You go so many, so many miles in that degree, and then so many miles in that degree, but you never go straight. That was so they couldn't pinpoint where we might be going. And we run a zigzag course everywhere we went during the war. We could make about 12 knots. It was about as fast as that ship would go. 20 knots is, is, uh, is uh, enough to, to get you quite a, pretty good, but uh, loaded and uh, underway about 12 knots as fast as those APAs would go. Uh, it took a long time to get... Four or five hundred miles at, at twelve knots, but uh, when we traveled without that, we traveled alone. Lots of times we were just thirty-two ships, Division Forty-Eight, mm-hmm. traveling from one destination to another. But constantly was we always uh, near enough to the field fleet that we had protection from way or another. Okay. Our, we never lost very many APAs. Because they, the Japs didn't think that as a as a as a hazard to them in the war. See, we we carried APA was amphibious personnel attack. We only carried people from ship to shore. We had on our board, on board our ship for protection. We had a quad forty in the front. In the front, we had two twenty millimeters, one on each side in a gun tub, and right in the center of the back of the ship stood a five inch. Uh, a gun, just a, a full five inch, and we could uh, 
we could protect ourselves just a little, but not very much. That's not any protection, hardly any. Yeah. Wow. So we had Mark Allen on our podcast several episodes ago talking about submarines, mm-hmm. Japanese submarines and, and their role and American submarines and their role or lack thereof in, in the Battle of Midway. It's mm-hmm. called Midway Submerged. I had a chance to read it. And I, I it, the, the part I thought of the book that's really fascinating is he went into a lot of detail about the different strategies that the Americans and the Japanese employed during World War II on how they would use their submarines. And you just heard him mention that they didn't lose a lot of APAs and that the Japanese were disinclined to uh, go after an APA. Well, an APA, if you think about it, the invasion force, the men, the materiel, is is one of the most important things that you'd want to sink in a war. Absolutely. Especially if you're on the defensive. But the Japanese mantra throughout the entire war with their submarines was to uh, focus on the large capital ships, um, the the battleships, the the aircraft carriers, the cruisers. Uh, the Japanese never really employed their submarines in a way that could cripple our logistics supply train. Mm-hmm. And, and and he's right. They they were able to operate relatively freely uh, w- without having to worry about Japanese submarines. Now they had to worry about like you know kamikazes and other things. But um, to me, that speaks a little bit. It reinforces some of the things that Mark Allen mentioned in his book. Well, and, you know, we also uh, discussed in, um, uh, I think, the Ira Buley series, the fact that, you know, the the first battle of the Philippine Sea, how we had effectively wiped out the, the Japanese submarine force as anything formidable yeah. with that stroke. True. And so by the time that, the APAs were coming around, and and Mr. Jennings was on his. But they didn't have the submarine force they used the to. The subs were really not, uh, you know, a, an element that they needed to be that concerned about. And, you know, they and, were obviously still a concern because they sunk the USS Indianapolis, right, yeah. you know, in the final weeks yeah, of the war. Yeah. But um, yeah, and, and think and contrast that with the Americans were able to do at at the same time. The American submarine fleet exploded in numbers and training and effectiveness, especially once we got our faulty torpedo issue worked out in late 43. And by this time, end of 44, early 45, we th- th- there wasn't a place that a Japanese surface ship could go where it couldn't be sunk by, by American submarines. And in fact, their merchant m- marine fleet in particular was absolutely wiped out, and the Japanese people on the mainland were starting to starve. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, complete, gosh. complete different thing. Uh, one thing I wanted to add a little back on the, the, the speed of yeah. the APA, 12 knots. Yep. You, they, you know, it said on paper that if they're unloaded, it could do 20. Yeah. Fully loaded, 12. Well, that's third. I just did the calculation. It's 13.8 miles per hour. Okay. Okay. He said, well, you're going to go for 500 miles. That's going to take you a while. Yeah. It takes you 36 hours at that speed at 12 knots. To go 500 miles. Yeah. And what are the distances we're talking about with the Pacific Ocean? Thousands of miles. It's not 500 miles. Yeah, it's, it's 5,000 miles. It's and that's not... Thousands of miles. Yeah, from Hawaii to places like Saipan, it's three to 5,000 miles, depending where you're going. I mean, think about this. You know, everybody here listening has probably had a bicycle at some point in their life. You could ride your bicycle at 13 miles an hour. Right. I mean, and then you got this ship that that's the fastest it can go. Yeah. And you're carrying these men... I don't understand. I still don't understand. You know, I mean, I guess it's because the submarines weren't around, but at 13 miles an hour, that's a sitting duck. Yeah. You yeah. know, and they were zigzagging. Sure. But how, 
I would have thought that those, and you don't really hear about the APAs getting sunk. No, you don't. And he even mentions it. They And I did a little research on this, and the APAs were not really molested by the Japanese. A, a lot of the transport ships were. Here's the, here's the thing that's so crazy, and we're going to we're gonna get into this a little bit. So when the Japanese, when it started the war, their submarines were better than ours. Yeah. They were larger. They had longer yeah. range, longer legs. And their torpedoes were the best in the world. Mm-hmm. The long lance, large diameter torpedo. No other nation in the world had a torpedo as good as theirs. And it was completely squandered by a flawed strategy. And <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and so he, he, here we are where you can have something like that be a real game changer for them. And, and it was just, it was completely squandered. And by the time they were willing to change their tactics, the Americans were so far into their defensive perimeter that it didn't matter anyways. Think about the Gerard Daly series where they talk about how the Japanese subs were moving up along the West Coast in early in the 19, in 1942. Mm-hmm. And these subs were ridiculously huge. Yes. They looked they, like, they look just, we, we talked about their dimensions. They yes. were the size of a destroyer. And, and some of the men on land Thought that it was a destroyer. And a cruiser. <laughs> and a cruiser. Yeah, they were by. like, we got a Japanese cruiser out there. Remember they called yeah. the police? Yes. And the police <laughs> like, oh, yeah, sure. Okay, Joe. Hey, O'Malley, why don't you get the boys down to the coast? We've got another, Jap- yeah. another cruiser going by. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, um, it, it, it just goes to show, I mean, you can have some of the best weaponry, but if your strategy is flawed and you've got a... Um, a hierarchy of uh, basically the upper brass that is rigid in their their game plan. Um, it's it's not going to get you far. Uh, no, got to be flexible. Yeah, at, at, totally. Yeah. And 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 that's something that we're still seeing today with some of the wars that are being fought in Eastern Europe. Um, so the next couple of clips are going to now we're going to. He just talked a little bit about you know hey we we had to get rid of you know, we had to take care of our casualties and all this stuff and he talked about the APA a bit more. Now he's going to talk a lot more about the training for the next campaign, which would be the last major battle of World War II, and that would be Okinawa. Well, there's really not much else to say about this other than Okinawa would produce or incur more casualties in the war in the Pacific than any other single battle. And um, he was right there, as we've learned, the signalmen didn't just stay on the ship, they went on the beaches, oftentimes with the earliest waves, to make sure that they could bring in the supplies and the equipment and the men needed to prosecute these terrible battles in the Pacific campaign. And so, listen in next week, he's going to talk about Okinawa in great detail, and hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys will get a better appreciation for some of the uh, struggles that our Marine Corps faced as we hear this first-person account from the landing beaches and the ships offshore. Take care. All right, this is the part of the podcast where we get a chance to share with our listeners things that listeners shared with us. And in this case, it is Don Quattlebaum who I mentioned earlier recently um, became a, a premium subscriber, and we really appreciate the support, Don. And um, he sent us an email, which was really interesting. Um, basically, he speaks about his father, Alexander M. Quattlebaum, which is like a cool name, and um, basically said that you know prior to the war, he uh, was a civil engineer and actually you know taught at, at Clemson. 
And then he speaks to the war starting in 1941. And here he is, this full-grown adult with kids, and he joins the war effort as a second lieutenant in the engineering corps. Uh, and he started in Australia, and he finished the war as a major. And I'll add that that's, that's pretty impressive to go from a lieutenant to a major. He continues, um, he went from Australia to New Guinea and the Philippines with MacArthur's army. And his records were part of the big fire, and I really wish I knew more. I, uh, I'll add this. Uh, that fire was in St. Louis, and a lot of records uh, for various serv- servicemen and women were lost uh, in that fire, which is really tragic. We spoke of this on an earlier podcast. I think that the fire burned for like a week. Uh, it was so intense from all the records in there. any rate, he continues. Uh, his father always said that since I was born after the war, that I might not be here if they had not dropped the bomb as they were preparing for the invasion and lots of Americans would not have come home for that. Well, as we speak to this, this is me talking, not Don, the movie Oppenheimer is out and it's creating kind of renewed interest in this idea of should we have dropped the bomb? We have yet to meet a veteran or someone who lived during that time who felt like we should not have dropped the bomb. They all felt like it was something that was really important. Don continues, listening to your recent podcast with Mr. Muntz, you talked about bringing guns home. (laughs) I don't know what the protocol was, and I imagine it was a little easier for others, but my father shipped home a locker with all kinds of stuff, a wonderful carved table from the hotel in Manila. Uh, He said uh, uh, when they arrived, there were cards out, paper money, and he brought some of that home, and cigarettes that were still warm. He's not sure about that, he says. The only weapons he brought home were his own uh, his 45 and his M1 carbine, which are freaking really sick, uh, sick in a good way, which is awesome. Um, he sent us a picture of the, uh, of the chest that he brought back from the hotel in Manila, and we'll put it on our website. And he continues that his father-in-law, William H. Blackwell, was an intelligence officer for the 525 Squadron and wrote the attached book, which we have. When you talk to Obie O'Brien, he mentioned the P-51 not being suitable for dive bombing because it was too slick and fast. Well, the 525 used A-36s, which were P-51s with speed brakes that allowed them to slow down the dive. Did not know that. That's part of why Ryan and I really like getting feedback from our listeners is the things that we learn from you guys, uh, like, like what Don just mentioned. Um, and he, he continues, or he uh, ends with a, a statement that reads, I doubt that we will ever see the likes of these men who grew up in the Great Depression and then volunteered for war. Bless them and bless you for what you do. Yeah, Don, it feels like every time someone from uh, this era dies, it, Ryan and I wonder if these individuals are, are, are being replaced. But according to the veterans we've interviewed, they were always very optimistic uh, about that. They felt like uh, every generation could be the greatest generation if they were asked to step up and do what they did. And that's something that's worth having a few beers and debating about. But that's, the, uh, that's what we've heard from most of the veterans that we uh, spoke with. So with that, we'll wrap up this episode and just want to encourage our listeners that if they have um, histories or stories about their families they'd like to share with us, we'd like to hear them and share them with uh, our fellow listeners. And so until next week, take care, everyone.